Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, mutual aid, cooperation in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is the second part of my discussion of the dawn of everything with anarchist archaeologists. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the first episode or it's been a little while, we are picking up right after Aris Politopoulos, you may remember him from our episode on video games, challenged us to think about ways that anarchism can use the insights from this book to create a new reality and see what sort of interventions we would want to make in current debates with the knowledge from Dawn of Everything. So the first person you're going to hear is James Birmingham picking up that question and talking about certain trends he sees in left-wing activism right now. So the conclusion of our conversation is right after the music. What I'm hopeful and like, I don't know. um, And it makes me really sad. is like, as you alluded to earlier, this was going to be the first of several books. Um, and I worry that the idea was like, and then we'll release the last book, which will have all the hopeful future anarchist prefigurative stuff. And, you know, um, obviously you don't live every day like you're going to die the next day, as much as we tell ourselves we do. Um, people put things off and we might never see that book. But at the same time, we can write that book. Um and I don't mean just like the five people in this conversation. I mean, you know, people can pick up from DOE and um, write the forward-looking, prefigurative, you know, what do we do with the fact that this book shows, um, and not to say that other work hasn't already done this work, but I think one of the things that Davids were very good at is the book is digestible. Um, and they're talented writers. You know, and that that there's, you know, there's a reason it's a New York Times bestseller because anyone can pick it up and, you know, get something out of it. Um, but much like I think my favorite work of Graeber's is the the Possibilities collection. Um, and the reason that's my favorite one is I think it really gets to what to me is the most important part of both Dawn of Everything and Graeber's uh, corpus in general is that it shows that many, many different things are possible. And archeology, span the archeological record is evidence of that. Look at all these different ways people have organized themselves in the past. Look at all these different ways that society um, can function for, for better or worse. Um, so of course it's possible for us to imagine ways, different ways in which a future society can function because we have evidence from the past that things can be different. And I do think, especially for a lot of young folks, that's a that's the thing to leap over is the this is the only way they can imagine things happening. You know, breaking them out of markets are inevitable, breaking them out of hierarchy is necessary for organization. Um, you know, just challenging those kind of narratives, I think, is what the book does well. Um, and I'm gonna go off on a small tangent here just because this is how my brain worked when reading the book. Um, so a lot of what I did while reading it was look at people's reactions. Um, and uh, 
a lot of people are very upset by the book. And I think the reason a lot of people are very upset by the book is tantamount with something I've been kind of reading um, and writing and thinking about a lot is like, why is party Marxism coming back so strong in this country? Um, I can only speak from my you know experience in North America, but like living in Florida for most of my life and now I'm in Las Vegas, um, the majority of people I meet under the age of, let's say, 30 on the left who are, you know, doing anything, who I meet at spaces, are either in PSL or RCP or like DSA, but less so. It's mostly the other two that I've personally been encountering. And I think the reason for that is that those groups offer a grand narrative, meta narrative, capital T truth in a way that Let's them be like, oh, this is how things can work. Here's here's some big here's a meta narrative I can grab onto out of like their you know postmodern malaise condition, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you know it provides that. And anarchism hasn't done that for a very long time, I would argue. Um, and there was a reason. I think it's. The reason PSL and all that stuff is so popular right now is the same reason primitivism was popular 20 years ago. It does offer capital T truths. um, And then maybe later on you figure out like, well, maybe those aren't so true. You know what I mean? But it provides a way of looking at the world. And I think Dawn of Everything challenges that for a lot of those folks because Marx picks up from, you know, Louis H. Morgan with this very... uh, teleological progress narrative from, you know, barbarism to socialism, um, you know, for, and this book challenges that narrative. And I think that makes people upset because it challenges, it challenges dogma. Um, And I think that's good. And at the same time, I don't think Dawn of Everything provides a new, actually coherent grand narrative or capital T truth. And I think that's okay. I think anarchism is messy in that way. Um, I don't think we need to have, you know, a, a narrative of this is how it goes always all the time, um, kind of that species being stuff. Um, but I do think it's interesting that I think in a lot of ways, Dawn of Everything agrees with early Marx and less so later Marx. So like in the, um, was it the 18th Brumar, um, you know, Marx is, has a thing where men make their own history um, but they do not make it under circumstances they choose themselves or whatever. Like things are handed to them, but that they still have agency in creating that history. And then I think most general readings of later Marx is like, well, actually, no, the base just creates a superstructure. Base superstructure, base superstructure. You know, they have the Althusser influence. Um, and so it kind of takes the agency out of capital H history. Um, and I think the Davids are trying to put the agency back into capital H history. Yeah, and I think that's sort of um, like there. What's interesting about it is there is. I I would say there is a grand narrative in the book about freedoms, right? They talk about the sort of three freedoms: the freedom to move around, the freedom to refuse orders, and um, the freedom to kind of try different things in terms of social organization. and I, you know, personally find that more appealing than the kind of capitalist grand narrative of like, you're stuck in this bureaucratically driven hell for the rest of eternity, because that's the only thing that could possibly exist in the universe. Um, 
and and I think what what I would and you know James and I other James and I kind of probably exist in extremely different kinds of spaces in terms of the kinds of places where we're interacting with with younger people right in my case it's usually my students in my in a classroom um, but I think there is a um, there's a desire for those kinds of narratives because I think people are searching for essentially a way out. Um, I think most young people who I talk to recognize that um, this, all of this that we live with cannot possibly keep going um, because among other things, climate change is just gonna kill us all if the fascists don't first. Um, so they're they're interested in thinking about you know what what other alternatives could exist, but often they feel like they don't actually have a language for it, um, and they also don't have an evidence base for what could work. And I think that's what Graeber and Wingrow are kind of trying to start to point to is um, not only do alternatives exist. Um, besides the the two kind of 20th century options of sort of capitalist hell or communist dictatorship hell, um, but that people have made things work in a lot of different ways. And in fact, often the societies that are, you could argue are kind of the most, quote, successful, not that there's any kind of universal definition of cultural success, but, you know, the ones where you would argue that most of the people living in these societies were reasonably happy and well cared for and, you know, they had enough to eat and they were comfortable are the ones that are reasonably flexible and that involve a lot of capacity for using different kinds of social arrangements um, across time and space in order to adapt to whatever weird circumstances the universe is, is throwing at them, right? So at the end of the last ice age, when everything went crazy and the temperatures rose and the sea levels came up by um dozens of meters and you lost sometimes hundreds of kilometers of shoreline the people who dealt best with that were the people who could did have the freedom to move around and did have the freedom to rearrange their societies um in in various ways in response to those changes and and you know we are living through a period i look outside my window as australia goes through kind of a second round of extreme flooding and La Nina um, circumstances for the second summer in a row, following the, the back of sort of a, a summer of catastrophic bushfires before that, um, we have to have that kind of flexibility in the future if we're gonna make it or things are gonna get really, really bad for a whole lot of us. And the archeological records strength is precisely that it shows us all the ways that people did find kind of adaptive and successful ways of being inside of these landscapes that have often been severely messed up by um, capitalism and colonialism. Yeah, and I, I kind of also, my first-hand experience of this was, well, I, I happen to still be in a, in a chat with PhDs, even though I'm now beyond that point, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure yet. Um, but there, when the I remember that when the book dropped, there was quite a bit of um, enthusiasm. I think exactly because of that, because of the fact that people found an outlet for certain ideas that they couldn't find 
uh, another way to express or for ideas that they had that their supervisors or colleagues or, or other professional academics, archaeologists, whatever, wouldn't really let them voice or they didn't feel that they had the space to, to voice. And in a way, what we said earlier, I think, still stands that the book could have given more voices within it. But in a way, it allows for more voices to eventually be expressed just because of its narrative and of its success. And at the same time, this I had shared it with the, with the Black Travel collective folks the other day uh, that I had a, a sort of a very uh, pessimistic moment when I asked my students on on that course that that Lewis describes um, about early early um, cities and states, where I asked my students to sort of imagine um, whether they could describe me a different society. Um, of course, with a caveat that students tend to freeze sometimes in, in the face of a, of a teacher asking them something. It was very hard for them to to come up with something. And that felt scary in many ways. Um, but I think books like The Dawn of Everything complemented or, or at least alongside what the broader anarchist movement is doing and also within anarchist archaeology is a way to subvert this not lack of imagination but more fear of imagination I would say uh, because people are afraid of the different as well and that's why I, I hoped for a more powerful closure which again might might be not doing enough justice to the book but because this is what really this is, in my view, what we really need. Uh, there is a lot of depression and you need the hopeful message and you need to show not only that a different world was imaginable, but that you have the tools yourself to imagine it. And archaeology is one way and anarchism, I think, is, is another way. Yeah, this this gets into my complaint about the book, which I, I think I mentioned to this group before we started recording, uh, that the, the French philosopher, or French whatever he was, writer, Michel de Montaigne, um, a lot of the ideas in this book I thought could be drawn from him, but much, much more importantly, um, Foucault, who I've already mentioned, and then Friedrich Nietzsche used these terms, uh, archaeology and genealogy, where the idea is uh, it does seem very hard. I would freeze up if someone says to me, hey, Graham, can you imagine another society? Which definitely the students do say. If you say I'm an anarchist, they're like, well, how is that going to work? Um, and then it's very hard to uh, explain, especially since the presumption is it's not going to work. Um, can you imagine if we lived in an anarchist society and someone said, I want to have a, a democracy with a parliament? Can you imagine what, how embarrassing it would be if you made that person try to explain how parliament was actually going to work? As we know, because it doesn't. Um, but with that said, where you, where you got to go, where Nietzsche goes and where Foucault goes is to, is to the past. I mean, we do this all the time with other countries, in America especially. The liberals lament is, well, it wouldn't be like this in France. Look at, look at all the childcare they have in France. But if you can go to all of these wonderful places and say, hey, you want to build a utopia? Well, look at where they have already done it. And when you look around the world, you'll find this Western 
modern, progressive, neoliberal bullshit almost everywhere. Um, and I think the primitivists, whoever mentioned the primitivists was actually right. It was like, oh, hey, here's a here's a past that we can actually find. You don't have to dig it up. It's just, you know, build a hut and stay there. No, no archaeology required. But this idea that you can find pasts that were different, if you want a different future, the place to start is not dream castles. It's with a different past. I'd like to jump on that because that's, uh, uh, I think that's something that we're all interested in and it's been something that we've all written about to some level uh, or other. And that's actually one of the frustrations that I had with this book was, uh, and you know, and Graeber himself has written about the, the importance of the imagination and radical imagination and, 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 and uh, envisioning these uh, different features that we can then you know, attempt to prefigure in the, in the here and now. And, and uh, for a lot of us within the collective, that's just what you're talking about, Graham. That's what the past is. It's this kind of, and, and the book, uh, uh, a proposal that I'm, I'm trying to, to put together and being very slow on is, is, is oriented around that uh, uh, as well. But it's, uh, the thing that kind of frustrated me with this was that, you know, we've got these paths uh, that give us all of these kind of uh, alternative uh, uh, possibilities for new presence, really, instead of even futures, right? If we're thinking about this as uh, prefigurative action. And uh, we still always get stuck on this, uh, um, you know, even even in like these kind of grand narratives that are supposed to be breaking these uh, concepts down, we get stuck on uh, these uh, ideas about what things uh, should look like, right? Like in terms of, uh, well, you've, you've still got to have cities, Right, and so the idea for for Wengro and Graeber, and they make a point, I think, at some point in the book, saying like, "Oh, we can't all go back to hunters and gatherers because only like five percent of us can uh, can uh, live that way, and we got to kill off like ninety five percent of the of the people." Uh, and that's there's some uh, fairness to those to those arguments, but there's other choices uh, that we see archaeologically that people have made, in, including um, uh, you know uh, uh, Flexner's talked about this in terms of degrowth. I've talked about this in terms of uh, uh, social movements against uh, centralization and, and bureaucracy in the Southwest. And uh, you see these uh, radically different uh, approaches to how society should be organized that don't involve aggregated uh, uh, urban centers, but they also don't involve only having 20 people um, uh, for 30 square miles, right? There's other, there's other routes, including things like dispersed urbanism, which is often what I'm dealing with, where you don't have what we would think of as a city, but you've got an awful lot of people, but they're all growing food <laughs> and they're able to support themselves. I mean, the Phoenix Basin, uh, which you know, uh, arguably is one of the worst spots in, in the continental United States uh, for people to live uh, in large numbers, uh, has almost always, as long as there's been people living there, had people living there in large numbers and they, uh, you know, in, in Tucson and Phoenix, people started uh, irrigation agriculture uh, about 4,000 uh, plus years ago. And uh, the presence of that agriculture with the Tono Autumn is why uh, the military set up their fort in Phoenix and the canals and stuff in Phoenix are actually still built on these massive kind of labor uh, projects, which when most of those canals were built, were not built through these kind of top-down uh, coordinated labor projects. They were built through these uh, kind of uh, horizontally organized uh, labor projects. Um, 
where am I going with this? So like the frustration uh, for me with the, with the book has been that, yeah, I got where they're going with the idea that you can organize urban centers in um, more uh, equitable or egalitarian ways, but that's not the only route uh, that we have. It's not even the only route that we have in the present for, for uh, how we can uh, work uh, towards more equitable futures. And so it, it felt like there was this big barrier that uh, I was running into when I was reading the book because they're saying like, look, you gotta step out of this idea of, of progress and accumulation, but we still gotta talk about accumulation of lots of people in one little, little area uh, to prove that we can live that uh, in like a more equitable way, which is fair. Like it's great that they you know, have demonstrated or pulled together all these arguments that other uh, folks have made that way, but uh, it's certainly not the only way that we can do that. And in fact, people regularly rip that stuff apart and, um, and all of that's often lost uh, by archeologists because it looks like things like collapse if you are assuming that it's unintentional uh, or that the environment drove it. And like what a, a, a bunch of us in the collective have argued regularly is that, you know, if you actually are, are looking at the archeological record much more closely and not using these uh, sort of teleological tunnel visioned ideas about uh, how, uh, you know, humans are always intentionally trying to build bigger, bigger, more, 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 um, but sometimes intentionally trying to uh, burn that down. Uh, if you actually think about it that way, then suddenly these things, these moments in time look a lot more powerful and a lot more frequent uh, than uh, than what we've often uh, given uh, our, our ancestors um, credit for. James, sorry. Yeah, and, and no, that's okay. I mean, I, just building on that, I think one of the, the things about the book um, is is sort of they they start with kind of quote, the indigenous critique of Western civilization. And they talk about Kandia Ronk and, and kind of the Iroquoian um, confederations and how they kind of saw sort of French and British colonizers um, in particular ways that may have influenced, you know, Western thought in particular ways. But then they don't kind of stick with that. And they don't talk about the indigenous critiques of Western civilization and of capitalism that still exist now in the present. Um, and I think that could have been a really powerful way of recognizing that, in fact, if you look around the world, um, there are, in fact, a lot of people who are already experimenting with these kind of alternative forms of social organization, often at a small scale and often in response to something. So if you look at, for example, the camps around um, places like Standing Rock or Mauna Kea um, and the ways that those forms of kind of indigenous critique and activism are still there, or, or to use an example kind of closer to home um, where I am now, the, there's been a um, Aboriginal embassy in Canberra next to the old parliament house since the 70s, and it's still there, right? That's 50 years of people very clearly saying in a way that would leave a kind of material trace, right? I'm standing in the center of state power in this country and telling you I have an alternative. And I think, you know, it would be preferable for a lot of people. Um, so I think there's, there's, that's another issue. And, and again, you can't kind of critique people for what they're not working on in a lot of senses. 
Um, and Graeber's written extensively about his kind of understanding of, of a sort of non-Western culture and its concerns in, in his work with the Malagasy of, of Madagascar. Um, but I think, you know, more broadly, if you're going to draw on, hey, indigenous societies did all of these things that looked very different to what kind of capitalist realism looks like um, and provides us with this kind of rich record of things we can draw on, um, you also probably need to be engaging with the people who are, who continue to do that work in the present um, and, and who continue to write about it, right? It's not like there isn't an entire field of global indigenous studies that can be drawn on um, to kind of show that, that you know, this, this indigenous critique that they, they use as a, a kind of rhetorical device at the beginning of the book, it's not a blip. It's not like, oh, when things were weird and we were getting to know each other before everyone got wiped out, indigenous people had this very specific critique of Western civilization. It's like, there's a, you know, 500 year record of precisely those forms of resistance and creation of alternatives. And I mean, thinking of, of some of the islands that I work on, um, particularly in Vanuatu, you know, this kind of sustenance of non-state space during a period of 200 years of um, kind of constant European invasion and interference is a remarkable story of how people actually do set up other options and other realities and live in these realities every day. And I think for me, a lot of my a lot of where I come to anarchism is not, in fact, from reading people like Graeber or Kropotkin or whatever. You know, it's from hanging out with Jerry Taki or Taranga Kuautonga or any of the kind of chiefs or elders who, who have really taught me about their way of life and the way that they set up something that, that kind of allows them to, in many ways, avoid a lot of the... Um, kind of negative interference of capital in the state and how they organize their everyday lives. I just want to jump in real quick and, and just throw out uh, to follow up what James was saying uh, for your listeners. You know, if, if you haven't read them, look up people like Nick Estes, uh, look up people like Glenn Coulthard, uh, Jacqueline Lasky, um, uh, Taiki, Alfred. Uh, uh, these folks are, are, uh, continuing that process of, of, uh, of that critique of, of uh, Western organization and, you know, uh, how their communities have been trapped in it as well. Yeah, and I, I think this is a fair critique as well to the book. Um, and I do, I also didn't really ask, but it, it is something that I think would be worth discussing with David Wengro. The fact that Maybe it is a little bit in the book. The fact that I'm not don't mean this in a negative way, but the book was written in sort of an armchair way. So a lot of research that was done in the libraries, in the archives, right? They didn't necessarily go out there in the field, which is something, for example, that exists in the fragments uh, book, right? And I think that's also what David alluded to when he was saying, well, this is one of the differences between the two books, for example. Um, but in a way, yeah, in terms of, I, I wonder if we are asking for a different book when we're saying, but go out and talk to, to these people, 
I do think it's a it's a fair criticism, but it, I wonder if it's a different, yeah, it's it's a different kind of research. But indeed, this knowledge is is in many ways out there. Um, yeah, like they they don't actually have to go to Standing Rock or Mount Akea. No, There's plenty yeah. of people who are already and have already written about this yeah. these these things, and and you know it's not that hard to find that information. These were these were events that captured kind of global media attention um, in very specific kinds of ways. Um, but I think that that actually would benefit the kind of narrative that that Graeber and Wingrow are trying to to put forward. Because the other thing that those sort of um, those particular moments captured is the way is just how quickly capital and the state will mobilize violence in order to prevent any kind of alternative from emerging. So I think there's also that, you know, on the one hand, I, I always encourage my students to imagine other futures. On the other hand, I also encourage them to stay out of the prison system, right? Like there's that reality that we have to think about that um, we, we want to do our best to kind of prefigure particular forms of social organization or to allow other kinds of alternatives to flourish. We, we also don't want the boot stamping on our face. Um, and, and it's that kind of balance in terms of how we find a way within these societies that I think is is a really important aspect of, of how we kind of think about, you know, the ways we can exercise the the somewhat limited freedoms that we do have. To kind of tangentially piggyback off that as far as um, what got chosen to be cited and not be cited. Um, one of the frustrations I had reading the book, and I'm not a professional like Eric anymore, so I can just say this, is reading it and being like, Oh, uh, Matt and Lewis talked about that in our special issue or reading it and be like, oh, that's an argument I made a while ago in a paper. Um, it seemed like both of them, with the exception of maybe Colin Gurr and Bill Angelbeck, who are, you know, Bill's in the collective as well. Um, I think they may have not read anything that was explicitly calling itself anarchist archaeology. Um, and maybe that maybe that was purposely to avoid being labeled as this is the anarchist book. Um, but yeah, I mean, everyone in this conversation and then other people in the collective's works like came to mind as I was reading and it seems like the people calling themselves anarchist archaeologists are not cited in this book. Um, and I can't imagine that's not, there wasn't, obviously you can't read everyone, but if you put anarchist archaeology in quotes, most of like me and my friends are who come up. Um, and the writing, a lot of those pieces would be good to be cited in this book. And I'll just, that's how I'll frame it. And, and maybe one of the reasons that they avoid that is, is if you explicitly label something as anarchist archaeology, you don't get on the New York Times bestseller list because you're instantly just written off by all of the people who, who just can't imagine anything besides what they, they have around them. Um, and, and so maybe, I mean, it's, you know, it can be a frustration, but maybe it's also a strength if it actually gets people to engage with those ideas kind of through another route than, than would be the kind of, you know, sledgehammer, like smash the walls down approach, but maybe it's more of a, a, a kind of, um, the, the people who might be inclined in that direction, but 
would be too scared of a particular label, um, you might actually get them to start kind of thinking in that direction because maybe they start looking at some of Graeber's other works and sort of finding some of those ideas, you know, through that that way. Yeah, that's that's a legitimate concern as well, right? The not not everybody wants necessarily to identify as 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 an anarchist, also for safety concerns. This is something we experience in the collective as well. Not everybody will readily identify with the collective for potential professional repercussions. And we all, I guess, have some level of experience with this. So I can see this as being a, a, a consideration. At the same time, I don't think... Yeah, again, Graeber had distanced himself from the term itself, but it's also kind of the cat was out of the bag, right? It was very hard to not... Like, every anarchist in the world would, would call Graeber an anarchist, and I think that's that's all you really need, even if, you know, he he was talking about the Labour Party and about Corbyn and, and all this discussion around it, which it was also an, an interesting discussion, I think, and he, and he had an interesting position, but in the end, he was the anarchist anthropologist, right? <laughs> And I, I don't know how, how David Wengro would label himself. That's also something I think worth discussing with him as well, um, whether he views himself as an anarchist or not, or, or anarchy adjacent. I, I don't know. I don't want to label the person. Um, but it, I think it's, it's worth exploring it uh, in that way. I, I was thinking as some of you were describing this book and maybe what you wanted at the end of it or to come after it. Um, Jill Lepore wrote this, uh, you know, one volume history of America called These Truths that was about the same length and density of uh, The Dawn of Everything. And then like a year later, she came out with like a 200 page kind of polemical and political minded book. I can't remember the name of it now that covered all the same ground, but it was like the first one was the history and was 600 pages. And the second one is my position. And, and a sort of liberal progressivism ran through these truths in the same way that anarchism runs through Dawn of Everything, but she didn't plant her flag in the same way in the first book, but once she had worked through it, the obvious next step was this manifesto of her ideas of America. And it seems that Graeber especially would have been really well positioned to write a 200 page accessible polemic as the next thing after this book, before the, before the 3000 word, um, Lord of the Rings uh, version of Dawn of Everything, which, you know, we're, we're not going to get either of those at this point. Um, I am ready now, though. This is this will be my question that we can probably go out on for for someone to write that 200-page uh, version of the Dawn of Everything that takes the basic arguments, streamlines it, and makes it a true airport book, as opposed to the kind of book you buy at the airport and realize later that you're never going to read because you're a busy business person. Um, so I wanted to think about that and, and ask you what 
what comes next? What do we need? Not, not your work, which you will all keep doing, but what, what's the next New York Times bestseller that we need downstream of uh, the dawn of everything? What would it look like? Uh, Aris, go ahead. Yeah. So I will go a little bit, if, if, if you would allow me, I'll go a bit on a different direction. I allow for... it. <laughs> Thank you. Because for me, um, both what both Davids are extremely charismatic persons, and it's very hard to it's very hard to do what they have done, right? Um, so I don't know if there will be another Graber. I don't know if there will be another Graber and Wengro book in the sense like of this level of of investigation and and so on, but. What I would like to see instead, and what I think we've bounced this idea in the collective as well, but for me, it's not about the next New York bestseller. Um, but as we've discussed with this book as a beginning, it's more about now picking up the collective work, right? So not have one of us or any of us being the, the archaeologists, right, the historians, the, the people who study the past scientifically, write a book that will then be a manifesto, but come together to write a manifesto, to come together to write a collection of pieces that are not about who, who writes it, but it's about what they write about and about the the futures that these, these pieces will imagine. So... Uh, for me, it's more about um, now. Now, more than ever, it's more about the collective, academic, and non-academic action, um, rather than the next New York bestseller. Because I don't think it's it's worth trying to mirror something that's so extremely successful that's very hard to repeat. And it's not about the competition who will get to sell more. It really is about the the content. So, you know, in a way, that's. I feel what we try to do with the collective and more collectives out there and there are more collectives of historians as well and, and of uh, philologists and what have you that try to do these things and get these voices together and put them out there in, in blogs, in, in collect, in zines, in edited volumes, in websites, in pamphlets, in protests. Um, yeah, that's that's where I see the future anyway so i'm going to rudely jump in again even though i said i wanted all of you to talk and i'm talking again because as aris was talking i was realizing what we actually need you to do um is we need a an, an intro to archaeology textbook we we need the textbook version of this you've already said that this is kind of a textbook but it's not completely a textbook um make sure it costs at least 140 dollars uh <laughs> because otherwise the professors won't order it it needs to be and i want a new edition every six months and if you do that you might convince people that this is an academic book that deserves to be taught to first year students and that seems to me something that would be absolutely Absolutely vital. Okay, now I'll stop talking. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've said this to, to you know, Lewis and James have heard me say this before, but, but that's 
one of my ongoing frustrations is um, the existing kind of first year level archaeology textbooks are universally horrible. They're boring. The ideas in them are out of date. They reproduce the same band, tribe, chiefdom, state bullshit rhetoric that we all know is wrong. And yet we teach it to first years because it's treated as something that's kind of digestible and it's easy to write exam questions about and, you know, all the things that we usually talk about. But I, I think if, if we actually wrote an engaging kind of book like that, it would draw people's attention and draw them into the field. Um, I, I think the, the problem is, you know, writing textbooks is awful because you're basically you are having to reproduce certain kinds of fundamental knowledge that we all carry around in our heads in, in fairly orthodox ways. So, you know, what an anarchist textbook would even look like is, is kind of hard to imagine. But I also think in terms of the, the public facing um, elements of, of the ideas raised in Dawn of Everything, I, th I think um, James kind of brought this up is, it would be useful for people to have some kind of guidance about, you know, how do you know that the claims that they're making are legitimate? How do you know that, you know, the site was dated in this way or it was so big or so many people lived there, you know, all of that, the, the kind of finer points around radiocarbon calibration and marine reservoirs and the old wood problem, like stuff that we all know and, and can recognize, but, but that isn't necessarily kind of something that the average person with a high school education is going to understand. Um, there probably does need to be a little bit more of, of the nuts and bolts built into that narrative because um, it is about, I think, um, as much as, as archaeology is interpretive and as much as it's kind of, um, you know, people can read the same record in, in differing ways, there is a kind of weight of evidence approach to what we do. And there is a reason that these kind of relatively recent findings in different parts of the world are driving the kind of new forms of, of grand narrative that, that Graeber and Wingrower were experimenting with. And um, we need to get better, I think, as a discipline about communicating those things to, to a lot of different audiences about the, because, it's, there's this really annoying thing about archaeologists where someone will say, oh, you're an archaeologist, that's really cool. And the kind of immediate knee-jerk reaction is, oh, no, actually what I do is really boring. And it's not. We need to stop saying that as a discipline. We're not boring. We're actually really fascinating. And we do really interesting stuff methodologically and theoretically. Um, and we need to tell people about it, right? We need to tell people why staring at a microscope and counting 300 pollen grains a hundred thousand times is actually a really important exercise for making these kind of reconstructions of, of past that that we can only know through those sorts of methods um so i think that's something that i think i want to see us do a lot more of is, is making archaeology kind of something that people can understand and, and get involved with i agree with pretty much everything rs and james just said but to answer your original question, uh, Lewis is going to write that book because I've seen the initial proposal, uh, the preliminary one, and he's going to finish it. And that's going to be the book that we need. Um, that's yeah, that's how I feel about it. Um, 
one of the final thoughts. Um, I've read a lot of reviews of the book. And I think one of the best ones that we didn't really touch on the argument of is um, Untenable History, which is the Carolyn Nakamura um, review. So if, there's a, if you've read the book, like read Dawn of Everything first. I've talked to way too many people who have read reviews and then have decided not to read the book because they read reviews and they decided the historiography is not up to their par. And based on like, you know, one like crotchety Marxist who didn't, you know, didn't also didn't finish the book. Um, you can tell sometimes from a review whether they did or not. Um, so read the book first and then uh, Untenable History, I think is one of the more critical reviews that I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in and I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but that's also because I'm like, I very much have a capital A anarchist agenda. Um, and so that's how I see the world. Um, and that's okay. And other people can see the world otherwise. And that's okay too. Uh, what else was I going to say? No, I'll just stop talking. I'll uh, just to add to what James Birmingham uh, said, uh, Nakamura is an archeologist as, uh, as well. And, and her critique is, is uh, um, a very, uh, very powerful. That review I think was one of my favorite reviews uh, for, uh, for DOE also. And I'll uh, and I uh, hopefully we'll have a book proposal out uh, soon, <laughs> James. I don't know if it'll be the follow up for this, but it'll be a a a, uh, a follow up. Um, and I think that kind of follows on what James and, and Aris were both saying as uh, as well, right? This is in, in a lot of ways. I think the uh, you know the project here is one of of uh, you know even if it's not just us. Um, it, within the collective or other anarchist archaeologists that are out there that haven't um, uh, 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 haven't encountered us yet, or we haven't encountered them, even if it's just like the broad uh, discipline and you know, fair event, really, you know, argued that science or research itself should be fairly uh, anarchistic, and and that sort of decentralized process of, of constantly spreading outwards is really what we're uh, uh, aiming for in, in terms of like moving this forward and then maybe you know in 30 years we'll have someone else do a, a grand synthesis of everything that's happened in the in the last years and if we're lucky it'll be like what rs was talking about it'll be all of us kind of black block writing and and uh just the black trial collective itself uh throws something uh out uh probably not a textbook though because they're hard <laughs> i thought of a thing to say if we're lucky one of the Black Trout Collective microgrants will go out to a budding archaeologist and they will continue this and we will provide them with the financial assistance they need to help pay their rent or their childcare or whatever to write that next um, grand opus that we all need. And that is a plug to give us money for the future of anarchist archaeology, anarchism, and our children. Yeah, the future of humanity is, is at stake with your donations to the Black Trial Collective micro-grant uh, program. And I don't know what else uh, what else there is to say about that. I mean, that's, um, there, there it is. Uh, I, 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 am, I am now, though, going to castigate all of you that uh, none of you uh, seem to have taken seriously the idea of writing a textbook. It's, it's too hard, they say. Um, dear listeners, uh, please send 
requests for a, a new, uh, what should we call it? It shouldn't be called anarchism. Like the People's History of Archaeology textbook from the Black Travel Collective. I just want that mail pouring in. I, I will raise my hand and say, I am not going to write an archaeology 101 textbook from an anarchist perspective. But uh, so not it. And now it's up to the four of you. Um, thank you so much, James, James, Aris, Lewis, James again, whichever one. Um, this was a real pleasure. We did it across many time zones. I'm honored to uh, have you guys on for the first ever Everyday Anarchism panel discussion. And uh, I, I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank and we uh, hope to appear again in the future. Oh, every, I think every single one of you. So I was thinking about kind of starting a sub series that I was calling Excavating Anarchism. Um, I haven't, that's Weird far as I've gotten. Point. Yeah, I've got the name, Excavating Anarchism. Doesn't that sound great? And that's that sounds really good. That's we'll plug more BTC members and not the, the four bearded ones this time around. <laughs> yes, ex yes, exactly. <laughs> someday, someday I will have an archaeologist without a beard on this on this podcast, but not today. Okay, so now you have heard what not one, not two, not three, but four anarchist archaeologists think about the dawn of everything. Thank you, James, James, Aris, and Lewis. Thank you. The Black Trowel Collective. Make sure you click on their website and donate if you can help them out. And thank you, David Graber and David Wingrow, for writing this wonderful, fascinating, frustrating book. Remember, you can find me at everydayanarchism.com and you can help the show out by making a financial contribution at that website, telling a friend, or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.